I'm Nick Harvey Doyle, an Anawan man from the Northern Tablelands of New South Wales. The uncurated podcast is made on the unceded land of the Wurundjeri, Woiwurrung and Bunurong people. We'd like to acknowledge First Nations people as the first storytellers. We pay our respects to elders past and present and the 60,000 years of forgotten stories they've told of country. Always was, always will be Aboriginal land. Do you know what a thylacine is? Thylacine? No. no. Oh my god, okay, yeah, I do. Uh, is, that, is that some sort of like prehistoric animal or something? Sort of like a dog, but like kind of more, I don't know, I think does it have like a, it's like more like hyena-like. It's like a medium-sized dog with like stripes. Here in Australia, some might say our wildlife is more famous than any of our people. Furry koalas, springy kangaroos, cute quokkas. These are the picture postcards that tourists send home. But there's one Australian animal that isn't recognised overseas, though it's super famous in Australia. In fact, it's become iconic for its absence. The Tasmanian tiger, also known as the thylacine, was hunted by colonisers to extinction in the early 20th century. But its presence has lingered on, haunting the modern Australian imagination with the memory of our violent colonial past. So what happens when something is so forgotten it becomes a legend? I'm Sasha Gadamaya and this is Uncurated, a podcast from the University of Melbourne. Every week, we take an object buried in the university's 12 museums and uncover its hidden history. This season, we're looking at objects that tell extraordinary stories. We want to know why these stories were forgotten and what that says about us. In this episode, Anya Tandon delves deeper into one of the biggest legends in Australian history and how a real-life Jurassic Park is taking place right here on campus. A warning that this episode contains descriptions of the violent invasion of Tasmania. I'm in the Anatomy and Pathology Museum which houses over 14,000 pieces of mostly human tissue specimens. It's a pretty full-on place. In one glass box, a skinned human arm is suspended in the air with fishing wire, ligaments and bones exposed. In another, a severed head sits comfortably on a plush red cushion. Out of my peripheral vision, I see what I think is a man standing in the corner with his back to me, But when I turn, I realize it's a full torso encased in preserving fluid. The head is sawn off at the top so that the whole body can fit in the case. I probably should have given a bit of a warning. Rowan Long is the curator at the Harry Brooks Museum of Anatomy and Pathology. He looks like a curator, with a tweed jacket and a pair of spectacles perched on the end of his nose. He's soft-spoken, but he's in charge of all the gruesome specimens in this museum. It can be uh, really full on for people. I've had people that are like, I am fine with this, I'm very fine with this, and then actually faint. I don't feel like I'm going to faint, but I do feel sick when I look past Rowan at the lung specimens. They're a pasty grey colour with blue and green spots. They look like pieces of bread that have gone mouldy overnight. Thankfully, I don't stay for long after that, because what Rowan has to show me is in his office. He takes me to a small room in the museum. There are books, papers, and boxes stacked on the desk. He opens one white box and I peer inside to see what appears to be a dog skull. So this one, here we go. 
beautiful thylacine. A thylacine. It's an animal more commonly known as the Tasmanian tiger, and it's extinct. This skull is so precious to Rowan, and he spent many hours researching it. But to me, it just looks like the remains of a dog. The last known thylacine died in 1936, and at the time, it seemed no one really cared about it that much. In fact, Rowan tells me he found the thylacine skull by chance. The University of Melbourne didn't even know it had a thylacine skull in its possession. I, I was walking through the biology labs uh, where they do for, uh, undergrad prax. They had a tray of bones and, and skulls and jaws, and there was a jaw sitting on there amongst dog skulls and dog jaws, and, I, and it had a catalogue number on it. And I was like, oh, that's a catalogue number from the Zoology Museum. I'm going to look that one up. Uh, and they had a thylacine jawbone sitting on a tray full of dog skulls and jaws. And it had been sitting there for decades and no one had recognised that it wasn't a dog, that it was in fact a jawbone from one of our most iconic uh, extinct animals. This isn't the first time the thylacine has been forgotten. An act of forgetting actually led to the death of the last existing thylacine, a female thylacine whose name was Benjamin. She died in 1936 at Beaumore Zoo in Hobart when she froze to death after her keeper left her outside overnight by mistake. How wild is that? An entire species lost forever due to careless handling? I can't believe that decades later, the same pattern of forgetting happened with its remains. I'm not from Australia, so I need to know more about this animal. I start by looking up footage of the last remaining thylacine. I'm looking at a black and white video showing a strange animal pacing around a small caged enclosure. It has zebra-like stripes patterning the lower half of the animal's back, a stark contrast to the otherwise dark brown body. From the front, it looks like a dog or a wolf, but when it stands on its squarish hind legs, it looks like a kangaroo. Both males and females have an abdominal pouch, which is rare in the animal world. As I'm watching, I'm wondering whether the existence of this grainy, hazy video is one of the reasons why people don't forget about the thylacine. What I want to know is, how did this animal go extinct in the first place? There were 5,000 thylacines in Tasmania when the British invaded in the 18th century. But a combination of disease, habitat destruction, and excessive hunting all contributed to its extinction nearly a hundred years later. The skins of the animal were especially valuable and rewarded if brought in. The Van Diemen's Land Company, a farming corporation at the time, paid five pounds for every thylacine brought in. That's equivalent to 714 Australian dollars today. And there is something else horrifying that links the thylacine with colonialism. The more I read about the calculated way the animal was hunted, the more I realize the similarities in the brutal treatment European settlers inflicted on the First Nations people of Tasmania. Historians now classify the British invaders' extermination campaign against Tasmania's indigenous people as genocide. Rewards were offered for the capture of Aboriginal people, five pounds for adults, the same amount as for a thylacine. Aboriginal people were driven away from their traditional lands by military attacks. In 1830, 2,200 civilians, police, convicts, and soldiers formed a human chain. They walked south 
down the island in an attempt to locate any indigenous people they had missed. Before colonization, there were estimated to be thousands of indigenous Tasmanians on the island. By the mid-1830s, there were just a few dozen left. So no wonder the extinction of the thylacine, an animal native to Tasmania, haunts the Australian imagination. It's a reminder of the bloody history of a nation built on stolen land. Perhaps this is why, despite the scientific evidence that the species is lost forever, many people still believe they see thylacines out there in the wild. Everybody's hanging to see these photos, so I'm not going to mess around. I'll get straight on with the job of showing them to you. Right to information documents have revealed eight cases of elusive animals believed to be big cats or thylacines. There's even a club of enthusiasts called the Thylacine Awareness Group of Australia who collect and record hundreds of suspected thylacine sightings a year. There are books, movies, and radio programs dedicated to the story of the native species that the white settlers drove to extermination. And it turns out that there's one team right here on campus who are trying to reverse that extinction. There is no dinosaur DNA, right? So we can't bring dinosaurs back. But it is, it's similar technology to what they describe in that first Jurassic Park, right? We are bringing back an extinct animal. That's Andrew Pask, a professor of epigenetics at the University of Melbourne. When I arrive for the interview, I can hear Andrew before I can see him. He's a jovial man with a friendly smile and an infectious energy. Despite his stature at the university, he's dressed casually in a blue zip-up hoodie and sneakers. He and his team of researchers have just won $10 million in funding to bring the thylacine back. Buried in the biosciences building, just beside the medical precinct where Rowan keeps the anatomy collection, Professor Pask runs the Tiger Lab. Tiger is spelled T-I-G-R-R, which stands for Thylacine Integrated Genetic Restoration Research. Seriously, it's like a real-life Jurassic Park. I think this is an animal that we hunted to extinction. So this was a very aggressively driven human extinction event. We went out and hunted them and effectively wiped those animals off the face of the earth. When I enter Professor Pask's office, I notice immediately how the room is filled with thylacine paraphernalia. There are plastic models of thylacine skulls on his desk. His mouse pad is a screenshot of Benjamin in that video footage I've been watching from Beaumora Zoo. He has five 3D printed imitations of thylacine fetuses. He even has a plastic figurine of John Hammond. You know, the guy from Jurassic Park that brings the dinosaurs back? In fact, he's a little bit like a real-life John Hammond himself, although with thylacines, not dinosaurs. So the first thing you have to do in any de-extinction project is look around at life today and figure out what is the closest living animal to that animal that went dead. Once you've figured that out, you then use those cells as your starting point to build your thylacine. And what we do is we just compare those genomes, we figure out everywhere where they're different, where that genetic code is different, and we edit that living cell from our living marsupial to now become a thylacine. So we make all of those changes to that living cell. And at the end of it, you've got a thylacine cell, and then you have to turn that thylacine cell then back into a whole living animal. The researchers would then have to take the marsupial cell sequenced with the DNA of the thylacine and put it into a surrogate animal, like the Tasmanian devil, to create a baby thylacine. That's the technology that they don't have yet, but this is still wild to me. And all this could happen within 10 years, according to Professor Pask. 
I want to know why, of all animals, did Professor Pask want to bring back the thylacine? It played an incredibly important role in the ecosystem in which it lived in Tasmania. One of the really fantastic things about the thylacine, and one of the things why I love it so much, is because it was so different from any other marsupial that ever lived. So it was this apex predator, those animals that sit right at the very top of the food chain, and there are no other marsupials that have that role. So when you lose an apex predator, it destabilizes the ecosystem. When we lost the thylacine, there was nothing else that could take its role in that environment. What he's saying does make sense. In a way, he's trying to reverse one devastating effect that colonization has had on the environment. But I want to know... Why are we spending millions of dollars on de-extincting the thylacine, with so many other living animals on the brink of extinction? Why shouldn't it stay dead? Part of the controversy, again, of de-extinction, that we're much better off investing the money in what species we have left than spending huge amounts of money trying to bring an animal back. And I think there's two sides to that. So the first thing I, I say to those individuals is, well, actually... Everything we're developing, every technology that we're developing has immediate conservation benefits for marsupials. And we know with the increasing global temperatures, we're going to see an increase in the frequency and severity of things like those severe bushfires, floods. You know, we've seen examples of that just this past year as well that have devastating impacts on the ecosystems. The idea would be if a bushfire went through or a flood wiped out a population, we could recreate that exact genetic population that lived there. And once the bushes come back, you can reintroduce those animals back in again. As long as we use this conservatively and think about which species and apply it to those ones that do have a really important role in the environment, then I think it's, it's just another one of our conservation tools that we'll have in our toolkit, I would hope, in another 20 years. It'll be like, you know, you can either conserve things, preserve them, or you can restore them. By the end of the interview, Professor Pask has me totally on side. I want the thylacine to be on Forgotten, and it turns out, I'm not the only one. An already bold mission to bring the Tasmanian tiger back from extinction just became even more daring. Melvin Uni has teamed up with US genetic engineering company Colossal Biosciences in a $15 million bid to bring the thylacine back in as little as 10 years. Over the past 100 years, the thylacine has captured the interests of scientists, curators, and conspiracy theorists. How the tables have turned. Historically, this animal was hunted without mercy, left out in the cold to die and mismanaged into oblivion even forgotten in university collections. Now, wealthy donors and bioscience projects have given $15 million to the effort. Why has this animal not been lost to history? I asked this question to Andrew Pask, who's trying to bring it back, but first, also to Rowan Long, the curator of the Harry Brooks Museum of Anatomy and Pathology. There's a, a very big element of sort of, you know, national regret that that's happened. It was really uh, charismatic, um, and, and really unique, I suppose. So it probably, it, it feels like something that we, we wish was still around. It's sort of so close that we can almost touch it, but it's, it's gone. It is definitely like our Bigfoot, Nessie, all of those things, right? I think because we've got that black and white footage, 
It's so tangible. But I love that people think they see them all the time. I love that you see those really crappy pictures of, you know, somebody's like, that's a thylacine. They show that footage again. I think we remember that we hunted this animal to extinction and I think it just keeps it alive in, in everybody's mind. So I like that they're seen everywhere. I like there's some passionate people out there who truly believe they're still out there and alive in the wild. I have seen no scientific evidence that they are. But uh, yeah, it's nice to always believe that they could be. I spent all this time trying to answer the question of what this mystical animal represents. And maybe the answer is hope. Enthusiasts hope they are still out there. Scientists hope we can bring them out of extinction. And the rest of us hope we can remedy the mistakes of the past. Australia never really forgot about the thylacine. But with all this research, it'll be more than just remembered. Maybe it'll be back again. That story was reported by Anya Tandon and co-produced by me, Sasha Gadamaya. The sound mixing was also by me. Uncurated is made on the land of the Wurundjeri people. Join us next week as we look at an artistic masterpiece that was lost for decades in the bowels of the university collections. I suppose it's been hidden and not published for most of its existence. Our series producer is Priyalene Kerra. Sound design is by Sean Roos and Thomas Phillips. Our theme tune is by Ben Salter as part of the Living Instruments Project. Our executive producer is Louisa Lim. Special thanks to everyone at the Museums and Collections Department at the University of Melbourne. This is a podcast from the Centre for Advancing Journalism.